I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. We will begin uh, this morning in verse 22. And uh, I don't know about you, but it's good to be back in Luke. Um, Proverbs was good this summer, but I, I feel like I've come home um, here to, uh, indeed, I, I think my favorite book in all of Scripture, uh, which is why we're taking five years to get through it, uh, Luke <laughs> chapter 12, verse 22. I do want to invite you to have your Bibles open this morning to find that passage on page 871 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, please take that Bible in that pew rack home. Um, this passage we're going to look at is 13 verses long. We will, as is our custom, go verse by verse, sometimes even not even handling a full verse at a time. So if you're not accustomed to a sermon at the length in which I am about to give, um, you will find it helpful to stay engaged if you have God's Word in your lap. We'll keep going back to it, so I do want to encourage you in that. Are you happy to have the Patrick Henry students back? Amen. Amen. And so we're glad to have you here, uh, students. I do want to let you know this will be the only time of the year that we will tell you that. Okay? And the reason is, is we do not want to turn you into a special ministry project of Hamilton Baptist Church. We are far more interested in you becoming part of Hamilton Baptist Church. Right? Aren't we? That's right. Now listen, some of you are thinking, I have four years, you know, uh, 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 not enough time to get involved in the church. I would suggest to you that is the exact wrong attitude you should have. Let me just humbly encourage you that you should be thinking, I have four years. Maybe I have one year. I better get involved as quick as I can. Right? The church is for you. This is not a four-year tap-out time from the church. I'll get back involved when I graduate. So get involved in ministry. Start helping with Sunday school, singing in the choir. Many of you are musically talented. Start entering into discipleship relationships with people in this church. Find, not this church, there's plenty of good church. I know a lot of you are going to be looking. God, find, find a church and get involved. And I think you'll find uh, that not only will you be blessed, but you'll be bless others. I'll tell you, my children have been eternally blessed. And I, and I don't use that. That's not preacher talk. I, I believe literally my kids have been eternally blessed by the ministry of Patrick Henry students in their lives. And so I'm thankful for them. All right, so Luke chapter 12, verse 22. Hear now the word of God. And he said to his disciples... Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, and neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith. 
And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this word this morning. I trust by your grace, through your Holy Spirit, it will challenge us. I think some will be particularly challenged by, I have been particularly challenged as you have worked in my own life through this passage. Our prayer and hope this morning, Father, that though we might be challenged, we will not be motivated by guilt or shame. Instead, Father, we we ask you now, your, your people, Hamilton Baptist Church, with one heart, pray to you and say, Father, will you free us from the idols in our lives, from the entanglement of things, from anxiety about money. Just free us, like Christ was free, that we might, with great joy and freedom, seek your kingdom above all things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Edith Schaefer, the wife of the famous Christian author Francis Schaefer, has testified to how God provided for the Labrie shelter where the Schaefers would use for decades uh, uh, a shelter to minister to uh, young people backpacking through Europe searching for truth. They used Labrie, the the shelter, to witness to them and to win them to Christ. See, Edith and Francis, they felt that God wanted them in Switzerland, in the mountains of Switzerland. In fact, sometimes I feel that's where God wants me too, by the way. (laughs) And their visas were were about to expire, and they didn't have any permanent residence, and they didn't have a permanent residence. They were going to be kicked out of Switzerland. And so in desperation, Edith prayed, Oh, Heavenly Father, if you want us to stay in Switzerland... If your word to me concerning Labrie means our being in these mountains, then I know you are able to find a house and lead me to it in the next half hour. When she finished her prayer, said amen, he heard, she heard someone calling her name on the street. Happened to be a real estate broker. She said, Edith, have you found a house yet? She says, no, I haven't, we haven't found anything. We're praying. She says, well, let's, let me take you someplace. Some place just came on the market. And soon Edith was in her car driving up the mountain to a shelter. I mean, and she walked and said, this is it. This is what God wants us to buy so we can minister to young people. But there was an additional problem. See, the chalet was for sale, but the Schaefers didn't have any money. And when I say they didn't have any money, I, I mean they didn't have any money. Like zero money. And so it's hard to buy a chalet in the mountains of Switzerland with no money. And, and so, you know what Edith did? You probably could guess what she did. She, she prayed. And she said, Oh, Father, please show us thy will about this house tomorrow. And if we are to buy it, please send us $1,000 before 10 a.m. tomorrow morning. 
I don't pray like that. You pray like that? The mail came. There was a letter in the mail from family that has been praying for the Schaefers and their ministry, but had never given them any money because they themselves were so poor. She opened the envelope, and there with a the letter, she found a check for $1,000. The rest of the money soon came in. It was never asked for. All of it was prayed for, and hence began the Schaefer's ministry that impacted literally thousands of people. Seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. The Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 12 has previously been dealing with a man who has come into a large inheritance. If you remember back to when we were in Luke in the spring, remember the man who had this money, needed help dividing it. And Jesus told this man who now had a lot of money a parable about a man who had a lot of money. But then he ends that parable and he turns, note verse 22, and he said to his disciples... So now he's beginning to address not people with a lot of money, but people with very little money. We might call this working class people, poor people. And these are the type of people that do not worry about what to do with all their money. They rather are more worried about the absence of their money. And Jesus begins to address these disciples and the anxiety in their heart that remains over the life circumstances in which they find themselves. For note, for you note verse 22, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. In verse 25, he says, Which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? Again in verse 26, he says, Why are you anxious about the rest? Verse 29, he says, Do not worry I think we, we believe that anxiety or worry is kind of like a small sin. It's, we're just kind of maybe anxious people. Some of you just uh, have just chalked up your anxiety to that's who you are. That's your character. We have people in my family that just are worrying all the time. And I talk to them about this, who I am. I, I worry. And we don't really think of it as a big deal. You know, it's not like unforgiveness or, or pride or lust. You know, we all kind of struggle with this. It's not a big deal. But just consider for a moment what anxiety does for you. For instance, if you are anxious about money, as Jesus is addressing here, you will be tempted to hoard. You will attempt to be greedy and covet. You will be tempted to maybe pilfer from work and so forth. If you're anxious about a task, you'll become irritable and abrupt and impatient. You're anxious about relationships. You might be withdrawn and unloving and indifferent. You're anxious about what other people think about you. You'll be tempted to, to play the hypocrite and lie and to hide truth and exaggerate your accomplishments. And we go on and on and on. My point is that anxiety is, is a, a root that, le- that, that bears the fruit of many different sins in our life. And therefore, if we could uproot anxiety in our heart, think of all the, the, the sin that we can get rid of, all the righteousness in which we can pursue. It's why I think Jesus comes and begins to talk to us about anxiety. Um, and, and in fact, he tells us really where it all comes from. You know where anxiety and where he comes from? Look in verse 28. He says, But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Now note this. Oh, you of little faith. I would suggest to you what Jesus is teaching us is that anxiety is ultimately rooted in a, a weak, a little faith in God. 
We're anxious because we do not believe that God is either wise, or God is not good, or God is not sovereign, that God will not take care of us. We are, as Christ tells us, of little faith. If you find yourself this morning and you find yourself to be anxious about your finances or your marriage or your health or your children or your image or your future or your your school that's to start on Monday, I suggest to you very humbly in the same boat as you are that you have a faith problem. Your faith is not strong enough. Say, well, okay, well, how do I get faith? Because it's easy to say, well, you don't believe. How, I mean, I mean, how, how do you believe if you don't believe? Well, this is what Jesus is trying to do here. He is giving us argument after argument to give us reasons why we can believe. Argument at weapon after weapon to battle the unbelief that is in all of our heart. Jesus gives us these weapons so that we might overcome what makes us anxious. I would like to suggest to you that he gives us eight of them. Eight weapons to fight the unbelief that's in our heart. Now, you don't, you don't need to get all eight, okay? But grab a couple. Some of these might resonate with you. And you use them to battle the lack of faith that is in you. So, so let's begin. Number one, uh, life is more than stuff. Your life is more than things, verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you eat, what you will eat nor about your body, what you will put on. Why? For life is more than food and body more than clothing. So what Jesus is saying is don't make food and clothing the point of your life. Right? Life is more than food. Now, of course, we like eating. Right? Eating is a big deal. I I recommend eating. You should eat. Okay? But you should not make your life about eating. Right? You should not be... You should consume food, but do not let food consume you, right? And, and it's easy to do. I mean, especially in our culture. I mean, just turn on television, right? How many television channels? It's not shows. We have all about, about food. And, and Jesus says, do not orient your life around this. He goes on and says, body is more than clothing. I find that particularly interesting. I, I did not a- attend Patrick Henry College, as you probably know. I, for undergraduate I went to Humboldt State University, which is in Northern California. And Humboldt State University, uh, a state school in California, about 7,000 students there in the town of Arcata, about 15,000 residents. And Arcata was the first city in America to legalize public nudity. And so what I mean by that is they didn't have like the nude section of town. No, the whole town... You just walk around naked if you like. And that's just, just what you, that's our, what our, our arcade was like, right? And no, I didn't go there for that reason, okay? Okay? So, but this is, it was, it was the naked town up there in the Redwood Forest in Northern California. Now that's not what Jesus means when he says your body's more than clothing, right? In fact, I, I very much appreciate you wore clothing this morning. So thank you. We're all thankful for that, right? We should not, be consumed by it. We should not live for our clothing. We live in a consumer culture. And it's, if it's not food, if it's not clothing, it might be cars or houses or backpacking gear. And we all get worked up about it, right? And Jesus says, don't live for these things. By the way, consider who he's talking about when he says life is more than food. The, the people who he's referring to do not know if they will get to eat today. When's the last time that happened for you? 
right? And he says to those who don't know whether they'll have dinner, he says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about food. Life's more than food. I mean, some of you who got back from Ghana, right? And we'll, we'll be testifying. I think next week we'll work with the slum kids in the shanty towns of Accra, Ghana. And these kids literally are searching the dumps for something to eat. They don't know what they're going to eat. They don't know if they're going to eat. Those are the type of people Jesus is talking to. What then would he say to us? Because we don't worry about whether we're going to eat. We worry about what kind of food we're going to eat, right? We open one of our refrigerators that's full of food. And what do we say? There's nothing here to eat. Right? Really? We open our closet and we say, I have nothing to wear. And what, what you mean by that, of the hundreds of things that you have to wear, you no longer like any of them. Right? Jesus is dealing with people who really don't know what to wear. See, we, we, we don't... We, and yet, here's the crazy thing. We still stress about it. We still get worried about it. Right? We're worried about our, our standard of living. We're worried about food and clothing. Jesus, that's what, no, life's not about that. Don't be anxious. Understand what life is about. Trust your Father. Number two, you are valuable to God. Another way to fight unbelief in your heart that leads to anxiety is to remind yourself, to preach to yourself that you are valuable to God. Verse 24, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Now, it is in particular interest to me that he says consider... The ravens. I mean, who likes ravens? No, I mean, who, who, who puts out bird seed for ravens? Right? Maybe a couple of you. A couple of you weird people, right? Okay. right? Who likes to hear the ravens sing, right? Who goes bird watching and really hope you see a raven? Even in the Bible, they're considered unclean, unclean animals, right? They're the, the symbol of death. Nevermore, right? That's what we think ravens. Death. Right? And Jesus says, consider the ravens. That's weird. Right? Why? What do, what, what do we consider about? Consider the fact that they don't reap, they don't sow, they don't store, and they are not freaking out about life. Because God takes care of them. We did this last night. Our family, we, for our family worship, we went, we went prayer walking through our, through our neighborhood. We went looking for ravens. Uh, because we wanted to consider them. And think about how they're living. And how that should teach us to live. Right? You see what Jesus says, you are far more valuable than these nasty birds that God feeds. Right? Certainly he will feed you. God, you know why God feeds the ravens? To teach you to trust him. To teach you to rely upon him. If he cares for them, he's going to care for you. See, we always think, well, if I get this, or I get this out of my life, or I get past this surgery, or I get this, get to retirement, whatever it is, right? It's, I need this, or I need this out of my life, then, then, then I'll be good, but I'm all anxious about it. And Jesus says, no, listen, listen, these birds, they're not worried about anything, because God's caring for them. I love what, how Martin Luther put it. Uh, you perhaps don't know Martin Luther's favorite preacher. He tells us about him when he writes... I have one preacher I love better than any other. It is my little Robin who preaches to me daily. I put his crumbs upon my windowsill and he hops onto the sill and takes as much as he desires to satisfy his need. From thence he hops to a little tree close by and lifts up his voice to God and sings his carol of praise and gratitude. Then he tucks his little head under his wing and goes fast asleep, 
leaving tomorrow to look after itself. Are you anxious? God will take care of you. You are vastly more important to Him than all the creatures of this world. He'll take care of you. Don't be anxious. Trust your Father. Number three, your anxiety is pointless. Right? Jesus takes off his, really, his theological hat and just puts on just, let's get real practical here. Verse 26. Excuse me, verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do as small things as that, why are you anxious about the rest? So he says, what, what does anxiety add to your life? What do you gain from being anxious? You sleep better, right? You're happier, right? You're more, you're more content. You have, do you have more time because you're anxious? And Jesus says, no. I mean, if, if you tried really hard to live past the time in which God has appointed for you to live, could you get past that time? What if you tried really, really hard? No. And if you can't add a single thing like an hour to your life, why in the world would you worry about it? Christ tells us. It, it does you no good. It doesn't add. In fact, it subtracts from your life. It doesn't add. Not only does it add, but it actually takes away. It steals your rest. You lie awake at night. You're anxious about tomorrow. You get up tired and then you are less productive at work and people begin to notice, which only adds to your anxiety, right? Steals your health, steals your relationships, steals your hope. You begin to fear the worst about the future. Right? What a, see how much Jesus loves us by addressing this issue? What a wonderful command. Don't worry. That's what he's saying. Right? God's commands are always for our good. He says, stop worrying. What do we say to him? Come on, Jesus. I really like worrying. Must you take everything good from me? Right? Right? He says, hey, get rid of the worry. I love you, he's saying. We're going to help you. I, you, you. You can't add anything to your life. See, God's will for you is you be anxious for nothing. That you enjoy His peace and His security and His hope. And when that anxiety begins to emerge in your heart, you need to fight against it. You can't just receive that passively. Oh, what tomorrow going to bring? Or I can't do this. Or I need to get past this. You need to take the truth of God and begin to fight against these thoughts that enter into your heart and begin to preach the truth to them. You need to say, I'm going to listen to Christ and not my anxious heart. I'm going to fight this useless emotion and not give in. Do not be anxious. Trust your Father. Number four. You will live forever. Verse 27. Amen indeed. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spoil. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will He clothe you, O you of little faith? And so Jesus says, I want you to go out and consider the lilies. Have you ever done that, by the way? I mean, this is an imperative command from God. He's telling us what to do. Go consider the lilies. How many of you have had your lily day, right? Where you're just going, I'm going to go out and I'm going to look for lilies. Right? We did that again last night. We went out looking for flowers. We didn't find any lilies, but we, we, we just counted the colors. We found yellow and we found purple and 
um, white and we, we red. We, we were looking for, for flowers, considering them. And Jesus says, go look at them and let the Holy Spirit teach you spiritual truths from the lily. In fact, I, I didn't even know what a, I'm, maybe I'm ashamed to say this. No, I'm not. Um, I, I didn't even know what a lily looked like. So I went online. They're actually a pretty good looking flower. So I would recommend you, you go um, um, th- this afternoon. This is not audience participation time. Thank you very much. Um, th- you go online, you look at um, some lilies, and Jesus says, you let them teach you because they don't spoil. They, excuse me. They do spoil. They don't toil or spin. They don't work. They just grow. And they wear whatever God gives them. And they're beautiful. One of my favorite things when I go backpacking is um, if you time it right, especially in this area, uh, the rhododendrons. And, and I've literally backpacked through rhododendron forests. I've backpacked through, there's a place down in southwest Virginia, you could backpack through a half a mile rhododendron tunnel. I mean, it's so thick that they carved a trail through these trees and they just come over you. And it is absolutely spectacular. Just think about that. Imagine in your mind just a, a, a meadow, a mountain meadow filled with wildflowers and all the, the colors that they have, uh, all the beauty in which God lavishes upon them. Right? Not even Solomon, he says, and all his splendor can match it. I mean, Solomon, the richest man in the world, comes decked out in all his majesty. And he says to you, don't you think I look nice? And Jesus says, well, it's a cute outfit, I guess. But have you, have you looked at the flowers, Solomon? Right? Have you considered the lilies? Look what God is doing to them. Now, this kind of sounds like a repetition of his exhortation with the ravens, Right? I'm not sure. There's certainly an element of that. But you notice verse 28, he begins to talk to the temporary nature of these flowers. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Right? He's saying, listen, these flowers, they just last for a day. We even have day lilies, right? They just literally last for a day. And in this day, you would go out and you would cut grasses and wildflowers. You bundle them up. You wanted to turn up the temperature in the oven quickly. You would throw one of these bundles laying nearby into the oven to raise the temperature. They, they just last for, for just a day. And God just lavishes on them, Jesus says. Again, consider what Martin Luther said. It seems that the flowers stand there to make us blush and become our teachers. Thank you, flowers. You who are to be devoured by the cows. These flowers. God, the cow's going to come by, munch them in just a moment. They are gorgeous and beautiful. Why would God lavish such beauty upon them? To teach you. He is going to care for you. You who will live forever. If these things are just eaten by cows and thrown into fire, how much more will he care for his children who will last forever? So don't be anxious. Oh, you of little faith, trust your Father. Number five, you are not to be like the world. Verse 29, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things. Jesus is teaching us that we are to be different from the world. My question for you this morning is, are you? In what way are you different from the world? Or are you just given to the same pursuit as the world? 
Are you just like the world in this self-anxious pursuit of clothes and food and, and all the other consumer goods? Because I think there is a masquerading Christianity afoot that says, you know, I don't, I don't cheat on my wife and I don't cuss and I don't watch objectionable movies. But other than that, I still seek what the world seeks. I still chase the same things that the world chases. I want wealth. I want comfort. I want abundance. And, and I'll praise Jesus when He gives it to me. We have taken the pursuit of the world and we have baptized it within the Christian church, sanitized it, and said this is what we are to live for. And Christ calls us to be different than the world. Are you different? Is there a difference between what you are living for and what the world is living for? Because when you think about the world, those who don't trust God, don't believe in God, what else do they have to live for other than stuff? Right? they got to get as much out of this life as they possibly can. They need to wring out as much joy from the things in this world as they, they can. Right? But we should be different. We should be so in love with God that the things in our life, they just lose their value on us. We say, I need more stuff. I need better stuff. No, you know, to be honest, I have God. I, got, I have God. What, 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 why, do, why does my heart run after these things so much? He says, don't live for them. Right? Shouldn't, shouldn't followers of Jesus Christ have a different understanding of what life is about? I appreciate um, what a, a modern philosopher by the name of McIntyre has has given us. He has written a book called After Virtue, and in it he has provided what has now become a, a famous uh, illustration that I've heard a number of times. McIntyre says, imagine you're standing at a bus stop, and a stranger walks up to you and says, hey, the Latin name for the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. And then he walks away. So how do you understand what just happened to you? What you must do is create a story to fit that event into, right? In order to make sense as, as, of what just took place, you need a larger story to, to understand it, to react to it. And so McIntyre says, well, there's three possibilities. There's probably more, but he gives us three. He says, you know, the most likely is the man is, 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 uh, is crazy, right? He's, he's mentally deranged. And so that, that's how you want, okay, that was just a crazy man who told me this. Or another option is maybe this man was recently in the library and he really wanted to know what the Latin name for the common wild duck is and he went and asked the librarian for help and you happen to look a lot like the librarian. And so he thought, mistakes you for the librarian and says, hey, by the way, I found out what it is. It's histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. Or a third option, maybe he's a spy, Right? <laughs> And he just gave you the, the secret code to launch the attack, right? Or to burn the files or to run away, right? In other words, what you have to do is create a story in, in order to understand and respond to the event. It makes no sense to you unless there's a story that goes along with it. And what McIntyre is suggesting, I think what Jesus teaches us over and over again, is that that's true for all of life. So... In other words, how you handle your money, how you handle life, it really depends upon the, the larger story in what you believe. So the world, they believe that this is all there is, right? They believe that this is an accident and that God does not exist 
and we live here for 80 years, 100 if you're lucky, and then you die, and within 100 years, no one remembers your name, and one day, really, the sun just burns up, and everything goes up in smoke, and it all ends, right? That's the story in which they embrace. So how then do you treat your things in your life? You say, I just need to get as much joy while I have enough time while I have the time. But what if, what if there's another story? What if the world is not an accident? What if there is a God? And what if the life here upon this fallen earth is just the smallest fraction of the life in which you and I shall live? Would that belief not change the way in which you interact in this world? If you truly believe that, would you not, would you not change your relationship with money and things and even your time? Jesus is saying, if you believe in God, why are you acting like the world? Why aren't you different? The world chases this stuff. The world is all anxious and worked up. They, they have good reason to. But you know differently. Why do you act like Don't be anxious. Trust our Father. Number six. You have a Father who knows your needs. Read on in verse 30. And your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Here, the Lord introduces a new word. It's the word Father. See that there? Up to this point, he's been referring to God as God. God feeds the ravens, for instance. God clothes the lilies. But now he begins to talk to you about your father. The reality is, as you know, if you've been a follower of Jesus, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have not only been forgiven of your sins, you have not only been promised eternal life, you have actually been adopted into the family of God where God, your creator, becomes your father. Jesus, according to Romans 8, becomes your older brother, and you are in that family the Bible says in John 1.12, all those who received him, he gave them the, the right, the authority, the power to be sons of God. And it's his, to the fatherhood of God that Jesus now wants to turn to address our anxiety. You see that there in verse, course, as I showed you, verse 30. You'll also see in, uh, excuse me, verse 20, uh, uh, 32 and somewhere else. I, I can't find it right now. So anyways, but father, father, father. And that's important because your father knows what you need. Right? In fact, when we think about the fatherhood of God, it, uh, it, it means really that God loves you, doesn't it? Now, it means more than that, but it can't mean less than that. The, the child is always on the father's heart. He, he loves you. He is your father. Children have their father's affection. Children do not earn their father's affection by the very nature of the child they demand it. I remember when I held my first daughter, Anastasia, and uh, I just... Um, it's 12 years ago, 12 and a half years ago, and I, I just began to weep. Um, and and I'm, I'm just holding, I've never met her before. It's our first time we've met. And, and I wasn't amazed at the fact that I loved her. I was amazed at the intensity of the love I had for this person whom I just met. I mean, I immediately loved her more than anybody in my life other than my wife. And of course, my, it took a long time for me to learn, my, learn to love my wife. Right? Right? And of course, that's my fault. It's not hers. But this child is just instantly. You understand that, right? Parents, grandparents, you get that? 
In fact, every time, I, all seven of my children, when I held them, I have a little ritual. It's all dumb, and we know it, but I do it anyways. And I introduce myself to them. I say, hello, my name's Stephen. Uh, you, you could call me dad. Um, and, and, I'm, and I tell them about God, and I tell them that God uh, loves them, and God has made them, and their life is for God. And I say, and I, so we have this little Bible study there. And, and, and you know what? I, I tell every one of my children, well, I, this is what I don't tell them. I don't say, listen. We, we got about, really, uh, in my house, you got about 18 years with me. And uh, if, if you obey me, and if you honor me, then maybe, maybe I'll love you. I, I haven't said that to any of my children. In fact, you, we have a little catechism in our home. If you, you go find a Karn kid this, after church, and you, say, you ask him this question. You say, why does your daddy love you? And every single one, I hope, will tell you, because I'm his daughter, because I'm his son. Not because I did good, not because I obeyed, but by my very position, I am loved by him. See, when Jesus says, listen, your father, he loves you. He knows what you need. You want to combat the worry in your heart, you need to get to know the fact that God is your father and he's never at a loss for what to do, what is best for you. So instead of living for these things now, when I have my father who can take care of the things, what am I free to do? I can now seek his kingdom. I can live for my father's kingdom. See that in verse 31? Seek his kingdom. He says, when we seek something, we focus on it. We're headed towards it. We're, we're pursuing it. We're living for it. We, Jesus says, you need to replace place the thing seeking which the world does and I'm afraid to believe that many of us live this way we're seeking things and he says replace it with kingdom seeking seek the kingdom and whatever life brings wherever you find yourself you find yourself in school you find yourself at work you find a dad a mom you have leisure time you're retired your life your food your clothing your health you know what it is about It's about seeking the kingdom of God. It is about furthering the reign of God, furthering your own submission to Him, calling other people into a relationship with Him, helping your brothers and sisters in Christ to live more faithfully as citizens of that kingdom under the reign of God. He says, establish the the fame of God, live for the reign of God, bring everything in submission to the kingdom of God. This is what you are to seek with your life. This is what Jesus calls for us to live. Seek his kingdom. And then what happens? You see that in the end of verse 31? Seek his kingdom. And then all these things are added to you. The Father will take care of these things. The Father will, will, will meet your needs. Right? So, so don't be anxious. You trust your Father. Now I understand that this is kind of hard teaching. I think God in Christ is in some way calling us to live a lifestyle far different than the one that we commonly embrace and are commonly bombarded with. And I think Jesus knows this and why he gives this incredible promise in verse 32, which is without a doubt my favorite verse in this entire passage. I would even commend to you that you might commit it to memory this afternoon. Verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Right. Reason number seven, not to be anxious, is you have been given the kingdom. It was interesting because he, verse 31, he says, seek the kingdom. And then in verse 32, he says, by the way, you already have it. It's given to you. So the kingdom is something that we seek, but it's also something that, that is given. I, I think ultimately what he's referring to is the eternal kingdom. I think the next verses make that clear, that one day we will receive an, an eternal kingdom. We're going to live forever in the kingdom of God. 
Um, you know, in fact, in this verse, I could preach a whole sermon on this verse. There's no doubt. Um, I love every word in this verse. We can't look at it all, but I just want you to note that he, what he calls you. You see how he addresses us, little flock. See, the kingdom is given to us by, um, by our shepherd, right? If we're a flock, then, then he's a shepherd. What does that mean? Well, Psalm, Psalm 23 tells me that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, want. I, I don't, I'm not going to want, I don't need anything. He's going to give me everything. I, he does not lead us into a place of want. He brings us to a place of blessing, a place of provision. And we're not talking prosperity gospel nonsense here. He's going to give us everything we need to live the life in which he calls us to live. We're not going to lack that as our shepherd. I love, by the way, he doesn't call us fear not flock, though. He calls us fear not what? Little flock, Right? It's almost like a dad who says, don't fear, little boy. Daddy's here. Daddy's going to take care of you. I'm gonna, I know you're scared. I know you're weak. But I'm going to use all my strength and resources to make sure that you are cared for because you're precious to me. See, God's going to care for us not because we're great. We're not. We're little. We're little in strength and little in wisdom and little in love and little in obedience and little in righteousness. But he's going to care for us because of who he is. He's our shepherd, right? We need him. And he's going to care for us. And he's going to do it with joy. As you note, he says, it is the Father's, what, good pleasure to give you the kingdom, right? He, he's a father after all. He loves to give gifts. How do you bring God's pleasure? By receiving from Him. By taking what He gives you with joy and delight. Dads like to give gifts. I love to give gifts. My children take total advantage of that, right? I love it. In fact, I'm gonna, I'm, I normally don't brag about myself. I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, so my wife just uh, had a significant birthday. Now, this is being recorded, so I won't tell you uh, what it is. But Okay, you got that? All right, okay. And, um, and so her, you know what her husband did? He's a good guy. Uh, he, he bought her 40 gifts, right? Yeah, because I love her, right? I love her. I love my kids. I love to give them gifts. I love, I love to bring joy in their life. If you think God is angry, constantly disappointed with you, come on, when are you going to get it? Up there with his arms folded, you do not know the God of the Bible. It is his good pleasure to give to you. He loves it. God, what makes you happy? Father, what makes you happy? I love to give. In particular, He loves to give the kingdom. He gives it to His children. We already established that, right? We, we know we're His children. But notice, by the way, who your Father is, right? He has, your Father has a kingdom, which is cool. Which means your Father's a king. Our Father happens to be the king who owns the eternal kingdom. Now, now He gives you, therefore, not just provision, but a kingdom because you're his child. Matthew 25, Jesus says, then the king will say, listen, let, this, let, let these words fight the fear and the anxiety in your heart. Listen to what he says. Then the king will say, come inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Before the world was ever started, God was preparing a kingdom for you, his children. And as his child, you have a legal right to the very kingdom of God. It's your inheritance. It's yours. 
It is by law your right to receive that as He has placed you into His family as His child. Why Jesus says He not only gives you the kingdom, but you actually inherit the kingdom of God. Do you understand the abundance that is coming to us? The, the kingdom, when it comes, will be so unimaginably great and so blindingly spectacular that it will literally heal the universe. And it's yours. That's what you get. You, you, let me talk to you college students for a moment, particularly your freshmen. So um, your school starts tomorrow, from what I understand. Um, you've graduated high school. Congratulations. That's, that's wonderful. And, and now you start school, and now you've got four years ahead of you. Let's say this afternoon uh, you got a call um, from your Uncle Lenny, okay? Now, you didn't know you had an Uncle Lenny. Um, he wasn't known to you, but he's there, and he happens to be very, very rich. And he says, listen, I'm very proud of you. You graduated high school. I'm proud that you're going to, going to college. And, and Patrick Henry, what a great school and all that. And he says, listen, um, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You study over the next four years, and, and you get that diploma. And you take that diploma when you're done, and you bring it to me. And um, I'm going to give you $100 million. Okay? So what, what do you do tomorrow? Right? You go to school, right? right? And what do you do for the next four years? Right, you go, you go to school. You make sure you study for your tests. You make sure you, you pass your classes, right? But what if you're like, I don't know if you, your, your situation was like mine, but I was poor in college, and, and I lived off ramen noodles. You could, by the way, I don't know if you know this, you could get like, ramen noodles are almost free. I mean, they are just ridiculously cheap. There is like no, no nutrients in it, but they're free, right? Um, and let's say you had to live off ramen noodles. Would you, for the next four years, be thinking, man, this life is just terrible, just ramen noodle after ramen. You, you wouldn't really care that much. Because you know in just four years you are set. I mean, it is taken care of. You see what Jesus is trying to get us to see. When I return, I am bringing the kingdom of God in all its fullness with me, and you inherit it. So while you're here, focus on the kingdom. Don't worry about the life in which you live. You are set. You may have to eat ramen noodles for the rest of your life. But in a little while, your eternity is forever established. You, do you ever think about things like this? I mean, do you ever... Think about your inheritance. You ever just sit down and say, God, I have the next 10 minutes just want to think about what's coming to me. Right? We get so buffeted by this world and what's wrong with it. And we keep our eyes off the goal which God has promised us. And Jesus is trying to say, no, listen, fear not. Think about what God is going to give you. And as you do, your need will grow dim in the brilliance of the kingdom of God. So don't be anxious. Trust your Father. You see what Jesus is doing? He's just giving weapon after weapon, isn't he? To help us to fight for faith. To free us. He's, he's not trying to guilt us, right? He, he's saying, use these. Preach them to yourself. Remind yourself of them. Put them in your heart. Pour your, your mind over them. Be like what the proverb writer says. Wear it around your neck. Write it on the tablet of your heart. If there's a group of people that should be free from anxiety in this world, it should be the followers of Christ. Right? He wants to free you. But it's not all he wants to do. He not only wants to free you from what you need, He wants to bring you to a position where you can radically give away what you have. Consider lastly, number eight, your Father will reward you. Verse 33 says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. 
What do you think that means? You think it might mean sell your possessions and give to the needy? Have you ever done that? I was thinking about that when I was working on the sermon. Stephen, have me the command of Jesus. Have you ever taken something and sold it for the, only, for the only purpose that you would take the money which you got and give it to the poor? Right? And I don't think he's talking about, it's not like you have holes in your shoes so you give them to the goodwill, right? So Really, so you have room to buy the new shoes and put them in your closet. No, he says, take something like that you want and you... you you sell it and you give to the poor. And to be honest, I, I, as part of me, I, I would rest, do a little wrestling with God. He won again. But, um, you know, it's like, God, I don't even know if I want to talk about this. Because, listen, there's 300 people in this room. Is anyone going to do this? I mean, honestly, let's just be honest. Is anyone in this room actually going to do what it says to do in verse 33? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. I don't, I don't know how to answer that. I'm praying to the Lord in my own heart. Now, I'm going to take just a step back. Not a big step, just a little step back. They didn't have savings accounts. Their wealth was tied up in their possessions. Right? Um, and so, um, what Jesus is teaching is, listen, I not, not only want you to give from your income, which I think many of you faithfully do, but he says, I want you to give out of your asset. I want you to lower your standard of living so that the poor can, theirs can be raised. And if you do, look what happens. Verse, read on verse 33. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. He says, you do this, and God is going to take note of it. And God is going to reward you for it, right? He, again, He's reminding us to be heavily minded. That you will, there are, not only do we get the kingdom, but there are evidently some type of rewards in that kingdom. So He says, simplify your life for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the love of the poor, that you might maximize your joy in heaven. Later in Luke 14, He says, when you have a feast, you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and, and you do so because they cannot repay you, and, and because they can't repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And you'll be repaid. I mean, how extraordinary. I mean, he doesn't need to do that. He doesn't do it because he loves to give. And he says, I'm taking note of everything you do for the poor, every sacrifice you make in order that I might reward you. And I'll reward you, by the way, in a place where there are no lack, there's no thieves, there's no moths, right? The the car starts every time. The air condition never kicks out. He says, I'm going to reward you in a place of provision and abundance. So what if we actually did this? I mean, what if like, you, you brought the kids around and say, hey, kids, we're going to sell this. And we know, well, I know, we know we all love it, but we're going to get rid of it. You know why? Because we're going to give money to the poor. And, and it, it's not that we don't like it, but we like the poor more. And so we're going to, we'll, we'll, we'll miss it. But just think about this. The kids that we're going to help can eat now, right? And so is, isn't that worth it? And, 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 and not only that, not only will it help people, how amazing is this? Not only do we get help people, but God is going to watch us do it, and He's going to, he's going to give us a hundred times in the kingdom to come. He's going to bless us. And what if we raise kids and families and grandkids who are thinking more about heaven than squabbling over the things in this life? And not just kids, of course, but you and I. You ever think about this? 
I mean, you ever, do you ever think, oh, I wonder what's waiting for me in heaven because of what I've done in this life? Ever? I mean, isn't he inviting us to? Most, most of us don't ever even think about heaven at all unless the preacher's talking about it. Right? You know why? Because our hearts aren't there. Consider the last verse in our passage, verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, what you do with your money shows you where your heart is. It's just follow the money. You want to know what you love? Just follow the money. It's your, your, your heart, heart's loves attract money like a magnet attracts iron. Just follow it. So if you love, you, you love food, right? You, you'll see it, right? And how you spend your money. You, you love comfort, you'll see it in your house, right? You love children, you'll, right? you'll see it in toys. You, you love education, you'll see it in books. Love entertainment, it'll be in your television, your man cave. You love other people. It'll be seen in how you help them and how you spend your time. You, you love, love the kingdom. It'll be seen in, in how you serve the church and whether you have difficult conversations and give to missions offering, right? Because I think we often play a religious game. We're really good at it and we learn to say the right things, but our, our wallet will betray us. Our money reveals what we love. Now you say, well, Stephen, is God after my money? No, he's not after your money. You say, are you after my money? No, we're not going to pass the plate again, okay? We're fine. We have enough money. Praise God. What's he after? He's after your freedom. He wants to free you. He wants to free you from the pull in this life. He wants to, he wants to lead you into a deeper life. But you have to trust him. You have to have faith. And then you lay the anxiety aside and you begin to live And you don't pursue an easy life. You don't think about, okay, I'll make this decision because it'll make life easier. You often do the opposite. You say, I'm going to make this decision and it's going to make me uncomfortable. It's going to make uh, a standard of living smaller. It's going to lead me to uncomfortable conversations, uncomfortable places. But I'm not living for my comfort. I'm living for the kingdom of God. And God's going to take care of everything I need. Don't be anxious. Trust your Father. Now, you, you might say, as we end our time together, well, that's easy for Jesus to say, right? After all, he's up in heaven and the angels and all that and sitting in the throne room and, and, and we're here down in, in this, this broken and troubled world, right? And that would be a fair accusation, but of course, it's not always true because Jesus did live in this troubled world. Jesus, I remind you, is not like other gods in splendor far away saying to us in a broken world, hey, stop your worrying. He came down and lived it. He became a man. He understands the challenges of this life. You think Jesus ever might have been tempted to be anxious? You think he ever might have been tempted to be worried? I want to remind you, he's giving this sermon on his way to Jerusalem. He's walking to the cross to die as a substitute for sinners. When he says, don't be anxious. He knows what it's like to be broke and homeless. He knows what it's like to have his reputation smeared. He knows what it's like for his family to think he's taken this a little too far and he's a little bit crazy. He knows what it's like to have friends he can't depend upon. He knows what it's like to have loved ones turn on him, steal from him, betray him. He knows what it's like to be single. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to suffer physically. He knows what it's like to die 
painfully. This is not simply another religious guru sitting on a comfy couch with adoring followers handing out life principles. He lived this. He walked this path. In fact, he, cons- he, he encountered more anxiety-causing situations than you and I ever will, for he knows what it's like to bear the very wrath of God upon himself. See, if you're not a Christian, please understand that Jesus, though we appreciate his teaching, he didn't come here to teach us. This, though, is very helpful. This is not ultimately why he came. It's what he did while he was here, but he came to die. That was the mission. Go, live perfectly, and die. Why? Because He takes our place when He does so. We all have sinned. We all have betrayed God. We all have tried to take His throne and live as if we are gods in our own life. And the Bible calls that sin. God sent His Son in this world to die for sinners. He went to the cross. He bore the wrath of God upon Himself. He proved that God received it by three days later rising physically, historically, and bodily from the grave. And now He calls to everyone with nail-pierced hands holding out mercy and grace. If you will believe in your heart that God raised me from the dead, if you will confess with your mouth that I am your Lord, I am your King, I am your God, you will be saved. You can do that right now. Salvation, my friends, is not by living an anxiety-free life. It is by submitting your life to Christ, surrendering to Him in faith. And for the rest of us who have done this, I tell you, you have no reason to be anxious. I know your, your life may be full of trouble, but you have no reason to worry because He has come, He has saved us, and all these promises, therefore, are valid. Your Father is going to take care of you both here and forever, so trust Him. Trust him like two people named Art and Helen. You see, that $1,000 that came in the mail for Edith Schaefer to buy Labrie came with a letter. It reads, Three months ago, Art came home from work with an unexpected amount of money. We decided at first to buy a new car, then came to the conclusion that we didn't need a new car. Our next thought was to invest in buying a little house, which we would rent. We went to look at houses, and as we looked over a very likely small house, I suddenly saw signs of termites in the beams. Look, Art, I said. Doesn't that remind you of the verse which says, Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I then asked Art, Art, would you be willing to take this money and invest it literally in heaven? Would you be willing to give it to the Lord's work somewhere? Well, that was three months ago. And all these three months, we have been asking God to show us what He would have us do with this money. We are now certain that we are meant to send you this money to buy a house somewhere that will be always open to young people searching for Christ. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Our Father, we are thankful that you are pleased to give to us. You are pleased to care for us in every conceivable way that we need it, both here and forevermore. Help us, therefore, walk by faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.